Happy Palm Sunday, everybody. And uh, it's weird it being Palm Sunday because for us, it was actually Palm Sunday three weeks ago because we're in the last week of Jesus and we saw the riding into town. And so it's really weird when you're preaching through a book that's now finally met up with the final week of Jesus, but it's going to take you four months to do the final week. And it's all falling during Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday and all that weird stuff. And so we had Palm Sunday, but it is Palm Sunday, but we had it already. And so for us today, it's not Palm Sunday as much as it is Financial Reporting Sunday. So that's what I'm doing right now. We have our second Sunday of the month is always our financial update, how things are going as a church. And so there is a slide behind me right here gives us a sense of what our financials were for the month of March. The total for that is 70000 Our target is 90000 from per month, and so we're a little below uh, what we are shooting for. But at the same time, our bottom line continues to grow a little bit because we're thrifty and we try to save wherever we can and everything else. But we just want you to be aware of kind of where things are at financially, the targets we try to hit, everything else, because we are very excited about uh, just the prospects of our building down on 203 and all the things it's going to take to do that. And so we want to make sure you are always uh, kind of filled with knowledge. You know what's going on and everything else. No big updates for the building right now. Still our paperwork's in with the city. Architects are finalizing their stuff so the general contractors can come in and kind of give their final numbers, but it's exciting times all the way around. So as soon as we have like big news to give you, we'll do that. The one thing you could do is this week we had our RC newsletter went out. We send it out every week uh, in our email. And if you didn't open that, there is a little bit of a teaser in there as far as one of the kind of the renderings that gives you a little bit of the sense of what the interior is going to be like. Uh, it's just a little sliver of the foyer, uh, the coffee area, that kind of thing. But you can get a sense of kind of the color, the feel, the vibe that we're going to be going for in that. Uh, and so just a little bit of a freebie for you if you got a chance to do that. So that's the first thing. That's kind of the good news reminder. Here's what's going on financially. The second thing, this is not happy news for me or good news, but I'm happy for these people because I love these few people very much. I'm going to bring up the slide right now. This is the Smith family. And one of the things we have done historically, it didn't happen during the, the pandemic so much just because of the nature of that. Uh, but, but what we like to do is when some of our own are moving away to another state, another city, whatever else, uh, we want to make sure we kind of like not only just remind everybody like hey this family's been a part of us and they're moving on to another place and we want to pray for them in that uh, but also we just want to say thank you to the families that have been a part of redemption for a long period of time and then they're moving off to someplace else and God's going to use them in another context and the Smith family definitely among those people that for me personally have made a huge mark in fact when Ellen and I moved here to Duval 14 years ago, the Smiths, I think, were just a little ahead of us uh, starting out here in the community and in the church. And when I heard that there was a family with, like, quads, I was like, no way, I got to meet the family with four kids all simultaneously the same age. How do they keep their sanity? That was my question. So, uh, And I, I just fell in love with the Smiths. Uh, Byron has been a part of our elder board and was leading our elder board for a while. His wife, Carla, has just done a plethora of things great family. And so they're moving to Texas, the greatest country on earth, apparently. Um, and uh, we're going to miss them greatly, but they're going back home. Texas is their home. And so they have served redemption in just great ways. Their kids have as well. Their kids are all scattered to the four winds now in college and that kind of thing. But they will be deeply, deeply missed. And so if you know the Smiths, uh, time is very short before they are uh, kind of be doing out of the community, but uh, you can love them, kiss them, and just let them know how much you care for them. And so right now, I'm going to go ahead and pray for the Smiths, pray for our time this morning, and uh, then we're going to get right underway with kind of the subject matter of the day. So let's go ahead and pray for the Smiths. 
Jesus, I thank you for Byron and Carla and the kids and just what they've meant to all of us over the years. And I, I know as they're going back home in time, they're going to plug into a church there and they're going to bless that environment as much as they have blessed our environment. And so I thank you for, uh, again, just the way they've touched lives. They've been a part of ministries. They've seen your gospel go forward. Uh, they've just done so many different things in so many different ways. I know even for me, just there were days and weeks in our history where my sanity and patience and just stamina was worn thin and Byron was there to say, hey, let's keep going. Let's keep doing this. Uh, there's more to get accomplished for the kingdom. And and so I thank you for just how they have been a stabilizing force just in my own personal world. And so, again, Jesus, I pray you bless them in the move. I pray that you find a great home for them as a church there in Texas. And from that, they will plug in and make an impact for you because that's what they're all about. And so I thank you for them, for their time with us. And I thank you uh, that your church kind of spans generations, spans, you know, even just any particular climate like you're just on the move with your church in the world and i pray that we always have that before us as well and so jesus we thank you so much and we praise you for your kindness and goodness and so we look to you this morning to teach us from your word in your good name amen so um i have been a pastor since i was 21 years old so i'm 51 now i started off as a pastor at 21 i became a lead pastor at 24 and yes, that's a long period of time, all right? That's a long swath in which to be a pastor. And over the course of that time, I can just tell you, matter-of-factly, that I have altered, I've grown, I've changed a lot over that period. Some changes may be for the better, some changes may be for the worse, depends on who you talk to. But there's been a lot of change, and even my wife and I have a joke that uh, we've been married for 32 years almost, and together for 35, and during that time, we will say that she's actually been married to four different men. All right, and all named Matt Boswell, but uh, Matt Boswell's changed over the course of time, and so she's just had different husbands at different times, and that's just the way the process sort of works, and I'm sure that's the way it is for you as well, right? But there's some things in me that have never really changed. Like, they're just so a part of my psyche or my core that they have remained through all those different iterations and kind of transformations and everything else. And one of the biggest things is that I tend to be, in almost all things, a type of moderate. I'm that guy that likes the messy middle of things, right? And so even when I was a young lead pastor, like at 24, 25, the church I was pastoring in, I would get a lot of criticism because people were like, dude, pick a side, right? You're always right in the middle. You always choose this moderation perspective. And because of that, I have found over the course of my life, what happens is, is when I'm hanging out with my liberal friends, they're like, dude, you're just too conservative, right, for my liberal friends. But then I go hang out with my conservative friends, and I'm like, dude, you're just too liberal. You're just too liberal, right? And so I'm too liberal for the conservatives. I'm too conservative for the liberals. I stand in the middle, and the great thing about that is you get shot from both sides, right? You just, it's so great to be in those crosshairs all the time. But that's just sort of my personality. I just find that messy middle to be kind of my space. Now, what's interesting about this is when I look at the life of Jesus, I see a similar type trait. I'm not trying to say that because I like the misty middle, that's like being like Christ, but I see a parallel 
that when Jesus is doing his earthly ministry, he keeps getting stuck in these middle groups where both sides are shooting at him, and thus he's in the crosshairs of everybody at some juncture, especially in this last week of his life, right? So we've seen him right into the city, he's cleansed the temple, he's picked some fights, and now he's in the crosshairs. And it's going to be in more than one, one venue that he experiences this. And so, in one sense, he's in the crosshairs of a divide between kind of the church and the state. Or maybe to say it differently, both the church and the state are kind of arraying themselves against Jesus. Now, in that context, the church is uh, Jerusalem, it's the Jewish leadership, and the state is Rome, and it's kind of the governing leadership. But both, by the end of this final week, are going to have issues with Jesus, and both will conspire together to deal with Jesus. Which is super weird, because both sides aren't fans of one another. But it reminds me of the old Indian proverb, the enemy of my enemy is my, my friend, right? So church and state will come together to deal with this messy middle guy that keeps disrupting their stereotypes of what they want in some kind of leader. So that's one element in which Jesus is in the crosshairs. But Jesus is also in another set of crosshairs in that the Jewish religious system, by and large, is also against him. Now, part of what makes this challenging, and this is going to come down to the topic of the day, when you look at the Jewish religious establishment, um, we need to see it with a little bit more diversity. In fact, one of the things I sometimes probably fail you in as a teacher on Sundays is I'll make broad statements like, well, the Jewish religious system believed, and then I'll say some statement, and it's kind of fill in the blank. And that's not very fair to always talk about Judaism with such broad strokes. It's no different than if I said, the average American believes, and then I fill in the blank as though all Americans on average believe the same stuff. I've been on social media. No, we don't, right? The average American is very diversified. We're tribal. We have our own little pods and groups. We have diversity of vision all trying to come together in an alleged melting pot of society. And the same is true with Judaism. In other words, when you look at their religious system, it's a bit like denominations. They had denominations too, so they had the Pharisees, and they had the Sadducees, and they had the Essenes, and they had the Herodians, and then you had different rabbis that had very different conflicting views of the Old Testament, and they would debate about all of that, and then you had scribes and lawyers who would parse stuff out. In fact, one of the most interesting things about Jewish religious life is that they would look at the Bible, and they were much more open to diversity and debate than oftentimes we are in our Protestant ranks. Like, they were just like, hey, there's a lot of different potential interpretations behind a verse, and they kind of welcomed that, and that was a part of their kind of churning process to figure out truth. But because of that, they were sectarian. They had different types of groups. But on this final week, those diverse groups all can coalesce with a common cause. Jesus is the cause. And by cause, I mean Jesus is the problem. And so no matter how different they see the world, how much they fight about theology and doctrine and practice and politics, Jesus unifies them under the banner of hate. That's what they're going to do. And they're doing this because, for one, Jesus is teaching things that threaten their teachings. 
add to this that Jesus has just told a story recently where he says God is like a vineyard owner and there's these tenants that are running his vineyard and they're wicked and they know that he's talking about them. So he's called them some names and they're upset about this. And so now more than one sectarian group is gunning for him simultaneously, right? That's what's happening. And that's what we're going to see here in Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 20. So uh, if you have our app, all the verses are in there. Uh, If you want to just simply open up your analog Bible, we're in Luke chapter 20. If you want to tap to the digital version, again, we're in chapter 20. That is where we're starting off with this religious world arrayed against Jesus. Now, while there are many different sectarian groups that Jesus is interacting with, the two big ones that we're dealing with today are the Pharisees and Sadducees. And while they're very different, they come together in this group called the Sanhedrin Council. So here's a little bit of your history lesson for the day. In the Jewish tradition, there is this kind of Congress, if you will. That's kind of what it's like. And it's made up of different groups, and they all come together to make decisions. So it's 70 people plus another person, total of 71, like 70 Congress people, and then one high priest, which is kind of like the the president of the Congress almost. That's kind of what the whole system is like. But envision it much like our own Congress, right? Where you've got Republicans and you have Democrats and they have very different visions of the world and how things should tick. And they have to come together then and find consensus on things, but they're very, very different. And so if we were to understand the Pharisees kind of in their world, if we linked it to ours, the Pharisees are much like Republicans, right? So they're very kind of anti-taxation or high taxation. They're very opposed to that. Many Pharisees were not uh, professional religious figures. They were small business owners or maybe even medium-sized business owners, but they had a deep religious conviction in relationship to that. So they would kind of do life from the perspective of influencing the marketplace with their politics and with their kind of theological vision of the world. They were more nationalists. They couldn't stand the Roman occupation, and so they were opposed to it. Uh, but when it came to their understanding of the Bible, they accepted the whole Old Testament. So the Old Testament that you have in your Bible, for them, that was their Bible too, plus some extra stuff they considered to be Scripture. They were the ones that took the bulk of all of that. So that's your Pharisees. But then you have your Sadducees, and they're more like the Democrats of our world. So they were more supportive of taxation because they looked and they said, hey, it was taxes that built this temple. It's taxes that make Jerusalem such a beautiful city. So they were pro-taxes. They were more the kind of establishment people. They they were the academics or the institutionalists in some ways. They were more pro-Rome because Rome did afford them some power as a religious body as far as the Sadducees were concerned. But when it came to their Bible, they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament the books of Moses. Everything else, not scripture. Nice, nifty, dandy, whatever, but not from God. So their theology was born strictly from the first five books, where the Pharisees' theology was born out of the entire Old Testament. And it's these groups that together make up the Sanhedrin Council, and it's these groups together that are always arguing and fighting and bickering, and they can't get along again, just like the American Congress. Just keep that in your mind. So what tends to bring Congress together in our culture? What does it take for both sides to lay down arms, lock arms, and say we're on the same team? It usually takes a common enemy that is so dramatic in its impact that it causes you to drop your issue and just go right after that issue. And for the American Congress, that type of moment where they lay down arms against each other and lock arms together lasts for about seven minutes. But 
When it happens, it's amazing. And in their world, the same was true. And the thing that's the common act of war that causes them to lay down arms and lock arms is Jesus. What Jesus is doing is frustrating to both parties. And so they want to deal with this rebel. And so today, as this section unfolds in Luke, both parties are coming to confront him, to ask him a question, trying to catch him or trick him in some capacity. And so the first group to come is the Republicans. It's the Pharisees. They're showing up, and they're going to deal with this problem. Now, in Luke, it doesn't identify them as Pharisees, but when we look at the parallel chapter in Matthew's gospel, it tells us that's exactly who this party is that comes to ask the question. But here's how it opens up. This is so great. Starting in verse 20, it says, Watching for their opportunity, the leaders, Pharisees, sent spies pretending to be honest men. They tried to get Jesus to say something that could be reported to the Roman government so that they would then arrest Jesus. Again, it already sounds like something politicians would do. This is so good, right? We can make the parallel. Nothing new under the sun. And so their plan is entrapment. And this is what's interesting. Here are people that are supposedly godly men, religious men, institutional men who want to do things that care what the, the, the justice of God is all about. They want to be invested into justice. Now they're coming up with the most unjust methodology to get what they want. It shows how destructive things can be. And in this sense, they don't want blood on their own hands. They want to trick Jesus into getting in trouble with Rome, let Rome do the dirty work and deal with Jesus on their behalf, right? So they come to Jesus, verse 21. Teacher, we know that you speak the truth. You teach what is right, and you're not influenced by what others think. You teach the way of God truthfully. <laughs> you should hurl over that, right? Like, like, listen to how sappy that is, right? It's so, I mean, honestly, when you read that, thinking about what they're doing, right? Like, we're going to get them. Oh, Jesus, you're so good, so smart, so thoughtful, so wise. And right now, your bs meter should just be tacking out. Like, these guys are full of it. This is one of the most destructive things you could do, is just have such a two-faced approach. But that's what a, a hypocrite is. It's a person wearing a mask, playing a part. And so they play the part. Verse 22. Now tell us, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not. Now, in their setting, this is really clever. This is the damned if you do, damned if you don't scenario pitched by religion. Be because here's what it comes down to. If Jesus is pro-tax when they ask this question, then he's a traitor in the eyes of the crowds and the population because they can't stand their taxation. They can't stand Rome. Taxes are used to fund the soldiers that keep them under uh, the thumb of Rome. And so from this, it's like if Jesus says, yep, I'm pro-taxes, then they're like, okay, the crowds will hate him and the Pharisees win. But if Jesus says, no, I am not pro-taxes, well, then Rome will hear this and he'll be seen as a terrorist and they'll come against him and the Pharisees win. So either way, the Pharisees are thinking, man, we've done it, like they're doing this whole thing, right? Oh, we got him, we tricked him, knuckle bump, knuckle bump, we got him made, oh boy, he's not gonna be able to answer this because no matter what he says, he's busted. That's the way they're thinking. The problem is that these dudes, they're, they're playing checkers with the chess master, you know? Like they're like, oh, look at us, we jumped two things, how cool. 
He's like, watch my rook, right? Like, that's what he's going to do here. So they think they've got it all solved. They think they have him busted. But now he's going to go like Jewish judo on them, right? He's going to use their momentum against them, and they're going to find themselves in a world of hurt. It says in verse 23, he saw through their trickery, and so he said, show me a Roman coin. Show me this tribute penny. And then from this, he said, whose picture's on the coin and whose title is stamped into it? Caesar's, they replied. Now here is a picture of the coin. So this is kind of fun, right? So we see that there's this image, this inscription, everything else. What I love about the image, Mr. Bean. That looks like Mr. Bean to me. Right? She's like, Oh, all right, so that's Mr. Bean, right? So apparently Caesar, not, not a looker, you know what I mean? But he had power, whatever else, and so that's part of it. But the inscription says, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus, right? And it's abbreviated for the, the Caesar's full title. But on this coin, what it fundamentally is, is a tribute to Caesar as God, so put yourself in Jewish sandals for just a minute. You're good monotheistic Jews. Yahweh is the only God, but now you must deal in a currency every single day that not only reminds you that you are under Roman occupation, but when you hold the coin, it's like having a little idol in your pocket every day. Every day you are reminded, oh yeah, Caesar thinks he's God. He's a chump, he's a punk, he's a jerk, he's a thug, but he thinks he's God, and we have to deal in this godlike currency all the time. In one sense, man, that really frustrates you. You hate it. I mean, think about it in our own culture. Imagine if you pulled out a $20 bill and it said, in Allah we trust or in Buddha, we trust, or if it was just the current president or a former president, like in Donald Trump, we trust, or in Joe Biden, we trust, you would probably be frustrated by all of those notions. I personally think God is frustrated we put his name on our money. He's like, whoa, wait, that's my competitor. Please don't put my name on my competitor's stuff. Well, it's the same dilemma for these Jewish people. They don't like that it says on their money that they have to use, Caesar's a God. But here's the trick. They also like money. In other words, while they have to hold their nose a little bit and use it, spend it, leverage it, uh, they also like security, they like safety, they like comfort, they like wealth. We've already learned in other parts of the Gospels that the Pharisees in particular have a problem with greed, right? So they have this love-hate relationship with the currency. But now we want to take it a step deeper. Jesus is using this illustratively. Like, well, what do you guys think about this idolatrous coin that's like carrying a little idol in your pocket all the time? What do you think about this? Here's the irony. Remember what he's just done in the last few hours, maybe a day or so? He's gone in and he's cleared the temple. And he cleared the temple because he says, it's supposed to be this place of prayer, but now you're praying on people. And the way you're praying on people is they're showing up to worship God and you're making them do an exchange rate of coins. You're taking in, for example, like two Roman idolatrous coins and you're putting them in the vault of the temple and then you're giving a temple coin in response to these idolatrous coins that you're storing in the temple. Here's the thing that should blow your mind for a second. The Pharisees hated idolatry. They hated the history of their idolatry nation. There's no way they would ever let a foreign false god ever in their temple again unless it's stamped on the money. And then you fill the vault of the temple with temple coins that are actually idolatrous coins saying Caesar is 
God. They don't even see their hypocrisy. It doesn't even register. But Jesus is tapping into the tension that they feel. We do the coins because we kind of have to, but we don't like the coins because Caesar is God. What are we going to do about this? And Jesus is like, okay, I'm going to bait you with this. We're going to see if you guys can begin to divine out the problems here. So they say it's on... It's a coin that has Caesar's face on it. It has the imprint of him being God. So then Jesus says in verse 25, Well then, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and give to God what belongs to God. It's really a brilliant answer. Because they were looking for yes or no. And he says, messy middle. I'm going to take you to a place you didn't see coming, right? Right in the middle. And it's so great because it's like, all right, whose mugshot's on the coin? Whose name's on the coin? That's his coin. It's no different if you came across a pair of underwear and has somebody's name in it. You're not keeping the underwear. Shouldn't keep it anyway, honestly. But, but if somebody's name's in it, you give it back to the person whose name's in the underwear, right? That's the way it works. And so what Jesus is saying is, when it comes tax time, and Caesar comes for his coin, he's doing you a favor by taking that idolatrous coin out of your pocket and taking it right back into his own coffers, because again, we know what this is representing. So you shouldn't sweat that. Give back to Caesar what is his. That's his domain. That's his godlikeness. He can have it. If you really care about God, you don't care about giving his stuff back to him. You should blow that off. He says, but if you're claiming to be doing things in the name of God, then focus on the things of God. Your faith, your fidelity, your focus, all your passions and energies. Instead of standing here and asking me, hey, who should we pay taxes to? You should be asking yourselves, oh, wait, what should we do today to honor God more? I'm sure there's a slight tinge of, hey, all that money in the temple, you should just give that back to him too. Get the idols out of the temple because that's all they are. So this is a pretty genius answer, like I said, because what he's trying to get everybody to think in terms of is I have to choose between this world and the kingdom, between God and gold. And in this case, the gold can be your God or the gold can just simply have a stamp or an imprint of somebody alleging to be God in the gold. Either way, he says, pick who you're going to follow, pick what you're going to serve. It's kind of a mic drop moment, you know? So much so that in verse 26, it says, so they failed to trap him by what he said in front of the people. Instead, they were amazed by his answer and they became silent, right? So there's Jesus. Render unto Caesar's what is Caesar's. Render unto God what is God's. And they're like, yeah, that was good, bro. Give me a knuckle, you know? Like, just too smart. Couldn't outwit him. And what's impressive to me about this, right, is not only are their efforts foiled, but there's this moment in which they kind of step back and they're like, wow, that was good. Like, Man, maybe we should consider what he's saying more. What's sad is after a couple hours, their envy will flood back in, their malice will flood back in, and they'll be right back to trying to plot away. And by the end of the week, they will come up with a whole new way to get Rome, to get Jesus. But on this day, this day they're shot down. So, the Pharisees on the right have given it their shot. Now it's time for the left to step in and see if they can sink Jesus' boat. Verse 27. 
says, then Jesus is approached by some of the Sadducees. They're so sad, you see. Sadducees. You'll remember that, trust me. All right. They were religious leaders who say there is no resurrection from the dead. This is their theological kind of uniqueness. So they pose this question. Teacher, Moses gave us a law that if a man dies, leaving a wife but no children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who will carry on the brother's name. Well, suppose there were seven brothers. The oldest one married and then died without children. And then the second brother married the widow, but he also died. And then the third brother married her. And this continued with all seven of them who died without children. Finally, the woman also died. So tell us, Jesus, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven were married to her. Now, the first thing I think about here is this one bride for seven brothers thing. Um, Dateline NBC should actually get involved, all right? I feel like this woman is just off in her husband's like one at a time. I'm like, if you've had seven guys, like, you might be a black widow, all right? So that's just my personal take on this. But, but aside from this, what they're trying to do is pull off this stunt that all freshman college philosophy majors like to do. It's the what ifs. Well, what if this and what if that and what if God made a burrito so hot he couldn't eat it? Is he still God? Like there's all these dumb what ifs, right? That people come up with. And so they're doing another what if. How about this hypothetical? And we're gonna, we're gonna play devil's advocate for a minute because nothing's cooler than being the advocate of the devil, right? So they're doing this devil's advocacy what if scenario and it's designed to get Jesus to reveal something that either makes him ignorant or errant. So the Pharisees came after Jesus, and they're trying to get him politically, and they can't accomplish it. The Sadducees are coming after him and trying to get him theologically. That's what's happening here. And both are just kind of designed to do the same thing, to undermine Jesus' credibility in some way. And so they think they have a real zinger of a question here. It says in verse 34, but Jesus replied, Marriage is for people here on earth. But in the age to come, those worthy of being raised from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they will never die again. In this respect, they will be like the angels. They are children of God and children of the resurrection. So he's going to have two answers here, but this is the first one. And what he's trying to say here is they have a misunderstanding of marriage. Marriage is not an afterlife concept. Marriage is an in-this-life concept, which is why we say, till death do us part, because once death happens, we doeth part, right? We don't stay married in the afterlife. Now, I'll be just candid for a second. That makes me sad. I'm not saying this isn't true and I have to be okay with what's truth, but it makes me sad. I've been married for 32 years. I've been with Ellen for 35. Ellie is my best friend. She's the one I dig hanging out with. After 32 years, I like her more now than I did even when we got married. So the prospect of having an entire eternity without my best friend as my spouse in this way, it makes me a little sad. So I'm just being open that that's true, but that's the way it works. Now, it doesn't mean I will be unfulfilled or she'll be unfulfilled. It's dynamics I can't fathom, right? But what I know is that, hey, it's just for this life, and after this life, there isn't marriage. We still have some kind of connection, relationship, friendship, but it's just different than what this life is all about. And so Jesus says, well, the first flaw in your logic is you assume marriage happens beyond this life. It doesn't. He says, but then there's this second flaw 
about the actual resurrection. You reject the resurrection. You don't understand the resurrection, but you're, you're missing something in this. And so again, let me give you the framework. The, the first thing was the Leverite law. We learned about this in the book of Ruth where brothers had to marry the, the widow of their brother if there was no children involved. And he's like, you got that part wrong. But the other part is these guys only accept the first five books of the Old Testament. And if you look at those books, there's really not much about afterlife. In fact, through much of the Old Testament, there's not a lot of theology about the afterlife. It, it's not a major theme in comparison to a lot of other things. And the Sadducees assumed that the first five books of Moses say nothing about the afterlife, so they didn't believe there was an afterlife. They just believe you worship God in this life, you do that, you die, and you just go, you're worm food. That's it. There's nothing after this. And Jesus is like, here's the problem. You've overshot that. You assume there's nothing about the afterlife in the works of Moses. He says, but now, as to whether the dead will be raised, even Moses proved this when he wrote about the burning bush. Long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, he referred to the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living, not the dead, for they are all alive to him. Now, this is a little subtle. This is not going to always be obvious on the surface, but Jesus quotes the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verse 6, in this right here. So, to give you a sense of timeline, uh, early in, in the Bible, the book of Genesis, you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. After Genesis, you have Exodus and Moses, a burning bush, a conversation with God. And God's like, listen, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Uh, that is the God, we're talking about, I am the God of those three who lived hundreds of years ago, Moses. I am their God right now. And the idea behind this is, if I am their God right now, then they are with me right now. I wasn't their God back then. I am currently their God now. So they didn't just die and turn to warm food. They died and they're now with me, and that's why I am currently their God, because they are currently dwelling with me. So the idea that Jesus is kind of coaxing out of this passage a little bit is this idea that faith in God results in life with God even after life in this life ceases. So if you have faith in God, once you die, you are in the presence of God, and therefore you're always united with God. And that's still true for us. For those who have their faith in Christ, when they die in this life, it's like you wake up to a new life. It's just different. And you're with Christ. Paul says this, to be absent from our bodies is to be present with the Lord. So this is the way it works. And then one day there's a resurrection, and we're connected with our bodies again, and it's this whole mystery that we read in our scripture reading for the day, and that's the day we long for, that's the day we're celebrating next Sunday. But, but Jesus' point is, listen, Moses talks about resurrection. Moses talks about afterlife. Moses talks about dwelling with God after you've long since left this planet. And so Jesus is like, you, you've missed the point. So then in verse 39, somebody says, well said, teacher, right? Some of the teachers that were there, teachers of the religious law, they were impressed. And then after this, no one dared ask him, ask him any more questions. So it seems that the Pharisees were standing in the wings. The Sadducees come forward, say what they say. Jesus burns them to the ground too. And then the Pharisees are like, yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one, right? Which is brilliant because they like the resurrection. They hated taxes, but they like the resurrection. Sadducees, fine with taxes, hate the resurrection. Either way, Jesus is like, you're all dumb. You're all dumb. And you tried to trap me, and you failed. You pose questions that you can't really substantiate once I've given you a reasonable and sort of middle-of-the-road answer that you didn't expect. So now it's time for him to return the favor. 
So now he's going to pose a question to them. Verse 41. He says, why is it, right, since they're so smart, they run the religious congress, why is it that the Messiah is said to be the son of David or an offspring, an heir of David? He says, how could it be that this is the case? Because David himself wrote in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. He says, since David called the Messiah Lord, how can the Messiah be his son? Now right there, as you're looking at that passage and you're soaking in the depth of it, what you should be doing right now is saying, what is that saying? I don't know what that's saying. I'm very confused. Now, if you're somebody sitting there going, I totally know that. Can you come up here and explain it right now? Because I don't know if I know this. All right, so if you could do that, that'd be great. But I'm gonna give you my best shot at what this is getting at right here because I think there's a lot of moving parts, all right? So let's see if we can kind of make this simple. Um, Jesus is quoting Psalm 110 here. This is the most quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. Fun fact, if you're ever in a trivia game, that's the one, all right? So of all the psalms, most quoted. Because this is a psalm about the chosen one, the Messiah, that the Old Testament talks about. And it was important, not just for the early church, it was important for all Jewish people waiting for the chosen one and waiting for the Messiah. Because what they thought was, hey, God's going to send a chosen one. It's going to be an heir or a descendant of King David. And when he shows up, and this is the key, he's going to be just like David. He's going to be an heir, an offspring that's just like our awesome butt-kicking king from back in the Old Testament. And he will give us the nation we want. He will give us the justice we want. He will give us the security we want. And so what had happened was they were longing for this David Messiah, this David King chosen one, but they had already defined the box he was going to dwell in. He's going to be just like this as the heir. And now what Jesus is doing with this passage is he's coming to them and saying, you know what, you got the right passage, but you've narrowed the box. We need to expand your box. We need to grow the box. And here I, here's how he's doing it. He's saying, okay, let's say, for example, that David's great, 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 great grandson comes on the scene. And he's the Messiah, the son of David. He goes, good enough, we're on the same page. That is indeed the Messiah. He goes, but in this, David talking about his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson also calls his great-grandson Lord. Not just son, but Lord. He goes, how can David say that it's both his son and his Lord? Well, this is where Jesus is saying, okay, let's grow the box. Because in one sense, he is David's heir, his son, his offspring. But in another sense, he's God's son, David's Lord. So David's speaking out of both sides of his mouth because both are true. He's the son of David and he's the son of God. That should blow your mind. The Messiah is not just a human conqueror. He's a divine conqueror. He's God who comes to conquer, but not conquer people, nations, Rome. He comes to conquer Satan, sin, and death. And so all Jesus is doing with this passage is looking at them and saying, you need a much bigger box. You put God in such a tight box, you put the Messiah in such a tight box, that when God actually shows up, you're going to kill him. 
you're actually going to turn against him. You're going to get your enemies to help you kill him. You're all going to gather together. You've been fighting for like 150 years. You're going to gather together and you're all going to crucify your God because your box is so small. God can't be contained in a box. God can't be contained in a temple. Stop putting God in the box. And so he poses this question that frankly they don't even know how to answer because they're so wired that God can only be this way and the Messiah can only be that way that suddenly Messiah and God show up and they just can't register. So instead they oppose and they attack and they go on their own way. But it was that last part that made me think about this morning and kind of what I want to just end it with, which is I was just thinking in my own life, um, how often do I put God in a box? How often do I put my relationship to Jesus in a box? Or I put Jesus in this tidy little box that I can define. One of the concerns I have always as a theologian is that we tend to try to figure out how we can define God so much that sometimes I feel like, oh, it's just, here's the box. We define it perfectly. We put perfect little borders. We've solved it all. You know, and, and it's like, God's like, man, my ways are not your ways. And I'm way more mysterious than you realize. And if anything, the more we get to know God, the more humble it should make us. Uh, the closer we grow to holiness, as Steve Camp wrote in a song years ago, the more we see we're strangers to his holiness and who he is and who his person is. And so my question I kind of close with for all of us is, are there ways we're putting God in our box? Or is there things about our lives that we're not giving to God because we're like, God, you can have this part of my life in its box, but you can't have the fullness of my life. God doesn't want the boxes. God wants what Jesus is trying to get out in this whole thing, right? Putting him first, giving to God the things that are God's. Well, guess what? We're God's, right? We're his. We are his possession. He has rights over us, and he wants our fullness. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I pray that we will render unto you all that is yours, which is everything that we have. It's our person, it's our stuff, it's our families, it's our emotions, our heart, our passions, our fears, our worries, our doubts, that we would give all of that to you. We would render unto you what you were due, not merely our worship and our praise and our obedience and our loyalty, but we will give unto you everything because you've given us everything in yourself. Help us to not put you in boxes or to even kind of take our own life and put it into different little boxes and you get one of the boxes of our life. But no, we would give you everything. Everything because you've given us everything. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.